Well, good morning and welcome again to Bible Center. My name is Matt. I'm the senior pastor here. Uh, if you missed the picnic, hopefully you can catch the next one. We will be doing it again. Uh, more water slides, more food, less pies in the face. It takes a little while to get the pie out of the sinus cavity, but we had a great time nevertheless. So glad for so many of you who could be here. You know, we think about the momentum that an event like a picnic incurs or the, the momentum that a service like this creates in our church, and we're reminded that this momentum goes back decades. God has been at work at Bible Center Church since, really, it goes all the way back to 1918 before there ever was a Bible Center. Some of you have heard us tell the story about Roland Maxwell, Mr. R.M. Maxwell, in 1918, he was the son of a Kansas farmer. He gets off the train in Charleston, and he begins his career as a young entrepreneur for over a decade. He saves money. He scrimps. He saves to eventually buy his own department store in St. Albans. By the time we get to 1935, he's a rather prominent businessman in the Kanawha Valley. He's a deacon at his local church there in St. Albans. But according to his book and his testimony, he's not even sure if he was even a Christian. Going to church for Mr. Maxwell was like going to a community event to stir up business. And he knew of Jesus and had heard of Jesus and had even made a decision for Jesus as a child, but his faith wasn't alive. In 1935, Mr. Maxwell contracted typhoid fever and almost died. A friend visited him in the hospital and gave him the gospel, and he said, for the first time, it seemed real. Jesus Christ died for my sins. Jesus Christ rose again from the grave, and Jesus wants to live in me. He took that excitement back to his St. Albans church, who at that time didn't believe that the Bible was really God's word. During that time, a little less than 100 years ago, as you'll remember, there was a movement across the nation and really across the world where in mainline denominations, there was a question, do we really have the word of God and did Jesus really rise from the grave? Well, that bothered Mr. Maxwell. So in 1935, he started some Bible studies. Those Bible studies later grew into more Bible studies and tent meetings around St. Albans and South Charleston and Charleston. And then his group began to meet here in this store, the People's Store on Capitol Street. How many of you have ever eaten at Adelphia Sports Bar or uh, there on Capitol Street? How many of you have eaten there? A lot of you have eaten there. Adelphia sits right to the left of that building, and so that building still stands. It looks just like that. I'll be sure to throw it up on my Facebook page uh, right after church. But in 1938, they began to meet there. Then eventually, they outgrew that facility. In 1942, they moved to the building that we still know as One Bridge Place at the foot of the Southside Bridge. It's now City National Bank. And in 1943, on March the 7th, they launched their first worship service. They called their first senior pastor shortly before that. And so we're coming up on 75 years since Bible Center Church started its first worship service. This past week, I had a meeting with a gentleman we're praying about partnering with and how to celebrate our 75th with gusto. A number of you were here for our 60th. I was looking back through some of those pictures this week, remembering the faithfulness of God. 
Well, Mr. Maxwell died within a year after launching Bible Center Church. He died of cancer. In his estate, he left enough money for Bible Center to buy their first permanent facility. This was a rented facility until then. And in 1945, they bought a house right in the area where Crossroads Men's Shelter stands. There used to be called Broad Street. Now it's called Leon Sullivan Way. And this was Bible Center's first building. You can see it didn't take them long to outgrow that. And by the early 50s, they realized we need our permanent facility. Some of you used to worship down at the campus on the boulevard. In 1956, I believe the church opened its doors and saw for over 20 years three different Bible Center pastors preach the gospel and see people saved and baptized in the church. In the mid-70s, as some of you recall, the church ran out of space again and moved out across from Ashton Place, Kroger, and at, there on the Corridor G where the school is now. And then in 2008, we all moved out here. I have to ask again, how many of you were here with us in 2008 when we launched our first service at this facility? Oh, a lot of you, a lot more than what I would say. Good. It was a beautiful day. It was a beautiful service. And after almost 75 years, we are still in Charleston. From time to time, people will ask me, does Bible Center in South Charleston or is it in Charleston? Our area code here is 25309, but you can tell everybody we are in the city of Charleston. No offense to all of you who love South Charleston. Even though you have better trash service and probably better a lot of things, we're still in the city of Charleston. And all of that brings us to the question, why is Bible Center here? Why has God placed us in the city of Charleston or the greater Kanawha Valley, which is usually to which I'm referring when I mention Charleston? Why has God placed us here? That's the question I plan to answer today. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles or your Bible apps to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, and it'll be on the screen as well. Let me invite you to stand. As I read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Why are we here? For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God." Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So why are we here? 
you want to follow along in your outline or in your bulletin, feel free to do so. The, f- the answer to that question is in three words, to glorify God. We are here to glorify God. We saw it in verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, if you want to underline these words, to him be glory in the church. We are here to glorify God. The book of Ephesians really can be divided in two halves. The first half was about the glory of God in the church and how that God has taken a people from the Jews and a people from the Gentiles and he's made them one. If you could summarize the book of Ephesians in one word, it would be unity. Throughout the book, we see the words unity or one or oneness. And he's emphasizing that God has taken all these ethnic groups and brought them together in the church. And that was a mystery before that. To think that God would build a people outside of just his covenant people, the Jews. And he would expand that to you and me, to Germans, to Africans, to the Chinese. That he would extend that to Jews and Gentile alike was unknown At least it was a mystery until Christ revealed his creation of the church. When you think of verses 20 and 21, think of doxology. Think of fireworks. Think of an encore at the end of a concert. Think of dessert at the end of your favorite meal. Paul takes all that he taught in the first three chapters and he wraps it up in doxology. And he says, to him, to Jesus, be glory in the church throughout all generations, forever and ever. Some of you grew up in church and you heard the Westminster Shorter Catechism that says, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man you were taught as a child is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We see this theme throughout the New Testament and the old alike, which is why here at Bible Center we begin our mission statement with these words, to glorify God by producing more maturing followers of Jesus. If somebody says, why is there a Bible center? Before we talk about taking the gospel to Charleston or taking the gospel to Togo, the answer is we are here for the glory of God. What does it mean, though, to glorify God? We use words in church at times, and uh, we just say, hey, yeah, we're about glory of God. But if somebody were to ask you, how does Bible Center glorify God, what would you say? I'd love to hear your answers. But I'm going to share with you just some thoughts about what I believe the Scriptures teach it means to glorify God. The word glory means honor, magnify. If you're taking notes, I thought this thought would be helpful. It means making something far seem near or making something unknown seem knowable. I'll repeat that. To glorify something means to make something far seem near or to make something unknown seem knowable. We talk a lot about the glory of God. God is full of power. God is full of majesty. When people would catch glimpses of God passing by their way, they have to shield their eyes. The light, the brightness was so great. 
But when we talk about glorifying God, we don't add to his greatness. We don't add to his brightness. We simply take a God who to many seems unknowable and we make him knowable. We used the illustration a month ago about a telescope. When you look through a telescope at the moon and you see the craters on the moon, you're not making those craters any bigger. Those craters don't grow when you look at it through the telescope or you look at a distant planet or a distant star, but you take something that's far and you make it seem near. You take something that seems unknowable and you make it knowable. In your outline, I've summarized what we mean at Bible Center to glorify God in this way. We mean to make God known to the people around us. To glorify God as a church means to make God known to the people around us. Jesus used this definition in John 17. In John 17, 1 through 4, Jesus said, when he had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all, whom have, all you whom have given him. There we go. And this is eternal life. And I have this bold. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So when Jesus says, I came to glorify my Father, he defines it for us. Back in verse 3, he says, this is what I mean to glorify the Father. I want the world to know who you are. Jesus quoted almost continuously from the Old Testament. He was saturated by the law of God. And you see him quoting from even Moses back over in, in the book of Exodus. Moses writes for us about the account where, where God had told him to go and stand before Pharaoh. And over and over again in Exodus 14, God says, Stand before Pharaoh and glorify me by making him known who I am. We don't make God any more holy. We don't make God any more loving. We don't make God any more majestic. But there are a lot of people around us, and sometimes even our own hearts need reminded how great and glorious God is. And so when we say we want to glorify God, we want to make him known. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Someone said that to give glory to God means to give the right opinion of God. We do this all the time with things that we love. Think about your favorite restaurant. Think about your favorite or your new iPhone or you, you meet that girl or you meet that guy. Whatever it is that we like, we want to tell others about it. I'm on a kick right now with um, Black Sheep Burrito. Anybody ever eat at Black Sheep Burrito? Man, that is a really good place. You can eat there for like six bucks. It's not that bad for lunch. So here, what did I just do? I glorified Black Sheep Burrito. Some of you didn't know about it, and now you know about it. I'll see you at lunch tomorrow, about 12.15. It's great. 
Uh, I'm going to kick right now with the uh, South Hills, not South Hills, um, the Olive Tree Cafe in South Charleston. How many have eaten at the Olive Tree Cafe? That's really good. I'm not so much into the sandwiches, but I like the hummus and the salad and the cool Pepsi machine. I like it there. It's pretty neat. And so I'll tell people, hey, you've got to go try this restaurant. You've got to go try this place. All I'm doing is I'm taking something that was previously unknown, and I'm trying to make it known. So here's the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians is writing back to a church from prison in Rome, and he's telling this church to glorify the name of Jesus just like he had done previously when he went to Ephesus. If you want to read about it, you can read about it in Acts 19. Paul goes into the city of Ephesus, which was a very important religious city. You had the, 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 the congruence of the, the Roman gods and the Greek gods, and, and you had this, it was a port city. It was important for commerce. And the Apostle Paul spends over two year, years there preaching and teaching. And so here were a people that knew nothing about Jesus and Paul comes to town and makes him known. That's what we want to do as a church. Glorify God. Now, if you're new to church, maybe you're asking or thinking to yourself, or if you haven't thought it, I'll put the thought into your head. Is it egotistical for God to glorify himself? You ever think about that? I mean, think about if one of our pastors, I mean, like, think if Pastor Chad said, hey, I want everybody to glorify me. I can see Pastor Chad joking around, like, I, I want everybody to glorify me. Is it right for us as a church to glorify Pastor Chad? I don't think he's here this morning. I think he's still on vacation, so I can use him. He's a great guy. He's one of my favorite Bible teachers. I love sitting under his teaching and his ministry. But Chad will, will honestly tell you, no, I do not deserve glory. Why is it wrong for us to glorify Pastor Chad in the position of God? Well, it's because he's not God. He's not perfect. Think about this. God says, give me glory. Is that egotistical? Well, it's only egotistical if you say that and fall short of the worth of that glory. But if God is God, and if God is perfect, and God wants your best, and your good, and your love, and your fullness, and your flourishing, then when God says, glorify me, he must know that it is for your good, and it is for our best. I like to picture it this way. Imagine there being a big house, and a man living on top of this mountain over the Kanawha Valley, and you get a message tomorrow that says, be at my house by noon. Sorry you can't go to Black Sheep Burrito, but be at my house at noon or else. You get this like vague message, be at my house by noon or what is Who's this guy I think he is? Then an hour later you get a text, be at my house at noon or you're going to be destroyed. You're like, what? who is this guy? You're thinking about calling the cops an hour later. Be at my house at noon. It's the only hope you have. You're like, what? The arrogance. And so you just have to, out of curiosity, climb the mountain over the Kanawha Valley, and you go to this guy's house, and right about the time you get there at noon, water comes rushing down the Kanawha Valley at levels it's never been before and wipes out everything in its wake. And you meet that man for the first time. And all of his communication makes sense. 
He wasn't being arrogant. He wasn't being proud. He knew that there was some danger ahead, and your only hope was him. And this morning when God calls you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, it is not because he's arrogant. It is not because he's proud. It's because he knows your only hope is him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This morning if you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, the rest of this message, if you hear nothing else, hear this. The gospel is the good news that the living God who demands perfection of all humankind sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live a sinless life, to suffer and die on the cross as a substitute for our sins, absorbing the judgment we rightfully deserved, to rise again, to ascend back into heaven, and to grant forgiveness and righteousness and his spirit and eternal life the moment anyone repents and believes. He's inviting us, the church, to spread that message and that will bring him glory. Specifically in this passage, how do we do that as a church? There's probably a thousand ways, but he gives us three here in Ephesians 3. How can we best glorify God? First of all, by growing in Jesus, verses 14 through 17. He uses so many images and and so many. It's like he is, again, this is just a fireworks of words. But we've summarized it with growing in Jesus. Verses 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family and on heaven and earth is named. Let's stop there just for a minute. When he says, for this reason, you might put in the margin beside it, chapter 3, verse 1. He's pointing back to chapter 3 and verse 1. In chapter 3, verse 1, he, he starts this thought. He's a typical pastor. He starts a thought, and then he goes down a rabbit trail. Ephesians 3, 1, he says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on your behalf. And the ESV has a dash. I don't know what your translation has a dash. He, all that means is he's going to stop for a second, and he's going to just, he has to just, talk about what this about Jesus and his ministry to the Gentiles. So, so then he, for the rest of chapter 3, he goes on the rabbit trail. In verse 14, he comes back to his thought and says, okay, as I was saying, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. Now, was Paul literally bowing his knees? Probably so. He was either in house arrest or in a prison cell praying for his people, praying for his church. Is there a command in the Bible that every time you pray, you must bow your knees? No, not at all. There's different postures throughout the Bible. There's the lifting of the hands. There's the bowing of the head. There's holding the looking up into heaven, crying. There's all different postures for prayer. Recently, Pastor John King, who I really, really am glad is here, our new executive pastor, he's brought some new rhythms to our staff and one of those is after our Tuesday staff meeting, he has us all just bow on our knees and we just pray together as a staff. Now, I've been here 18 months. We've been praying together as a staff, if not daily. We've been praying together as a staff a lot. But never once have asked our staff to get on our knees. We did that for the first time this past Tuesday. It was so neat. Like, wow, just as a staff praying at our pastors and staff. 
Speaking of John, this isn't part of the message, but I have time. Um, we, we were, a couple weeks ago, I was so excited he was here. He was already learning and picking up all the information. And I was going to sleep. It was between that period of being awake and asleep where you're kind of asleep. And Sarah leans over and she touches my hand before I go to sleep. And, you know, probably going to be real sweet or something. And I was already kind of half asleep. And, and she's touching my hand trying to get my attention. And I, she, I don't remember this. You can ask her. She said, I raised up in bed and I said, if you have any questions, you can ask Pastor John King. <laughs> then I laid back down and went, to, went back to sleep. Okay, rabbit trail. Back to verse 15. From, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. The family there. Uh, it could be no one's really for sure what he's talking about. He, he's, he's definitely talking about the Jews and Gentiles coming together in one family of the church. He could be talking about all the nations of the world and how that God is their creator. Either way, God is over his family. In verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power. There's a lot of words here, but if you underline anything in verse 16, you can underline strengthened with power. That's the key thought. Uh, this word is used over and over again to be synonymous with courage, be, be made courageous, be energized, be made confident by his power through his spirit in your inner being. The inner being is used twice, two other occasions besides this in the New Testament. One is 2 Corinthians 4.16, and the other is Romans 7. And in 2 Corinthians 4.16, he's referring to how our outer man, our bodies, as men and women, as the older we get, we decay, but our inner spirit, our inner man and woman is made like Jesus. In Romans 7, Paul just cuts to the chase and he calls this your mind. He says your mind is made into the image of Jesus. He's referring to spiritual growth. So he reminds the church, if you want to glorify Jesus, the first way you can do that is just grow spiritually yourself. Just grow spiritually. The second way we do it, not only growing in Jesus, but also trusting in Jesus. Verse 17 Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. We'll come back to verse 18 in a second. In verse 20, he says, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work, where? Within us. Number two, we glorify God by trusting in Jesus. In verse 17, he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, Christ came and lived inside you. You say, wait a minute, Pastor Matt, doesn't the Bible say hey, the Holy Spirit came and lived inside you? Yes, it does. But Colossians 1.17 says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We try to solve the tension sometimes by saying, well, it's the spirit of Christ. And, and I'm okay with that. But in Colossians 1.17, he says, it's Christ that's in you. Galatians 2.20, one of my favorite verses of the Bible, at least this week, is, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. 
And so when Paul says, hey, have faith in Jesus that he may dwell with you, he's not saying that Jesus comes and goes. Well, he comes and he goes. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying, the word dwell there means to be at home in, to be at ease in, to be comfortable in. You ever go to somebody's house and just feel like you're just all tense? You ever do that? I've been in many of your homes, look forward to being in many more. I love going into your house and you're always saying, hey, just relax, kick your feet up, just relax. But you ever gone to somebody's house and you feel tense? You're like, what can I do? What can I not do? Am I, no, don't sit on that couch. You know, oh, my bad. I'm sorry, I didn't know that. You know, the one with the plastic on it that you're like saving for the millennium, you know, that couch. Um, so, but you go to somebody and say, hey, just relax. And chill. You know you're at home when somebody lets you get in their fridge without asking. To me, that's like the litmus test. Now, I'm not going to come to your house and get in your fridge, but I might. So just, just to relax, that's what this word means. It says that, yes, Jesus lives inside of you. But the question is, is Jesus at ease? Is Jesus satisfied? Does Jesus feel welcome with the way you're living your life? Or is your life being lived by your own strength causing Jesus not to be able to energize or strengthen you in your Christian growth? He's saying just trust Jesus. He lives within you and let him live his life through you. That's a great way to glorify God. Lastly, how do we glorify God? It's by loving like Jesus. By loving like Jesus. Verse 17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Rooted, that's a farming term. Grounded, that's a construction term. He just covers it all. You may be rooted and grounded in love. You may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, not just the Jewish saints, not just the Gentile saints, but all the saints, not just the old saints, and the new saints, not just the classical saints and the contemporary saints. He says that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What? What do we need to comprehend? The breadth and length and height and depth of what? Verse 19, and to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The pinnacle of Ephesians 3, 14 through 21 is in verse 19 when he says, Know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You ever met a Christian that seems to enjoy just being a Christian? You ever met a Christian that didn't seem to enjoy being a Christian? I was talking to a friend yesterday. He was telling me about family member getting saved, trusting Jesus, and then like after he got saved, he felt like he had to add all these laws. You know, he used to be a pretty nice guy, a pretty fun guy to hang around. Then he gets saved, and you get like you get the good news, then you get the bad news. Well, the bad news is now that you're saved, you have to live like a prude. Now that you're saved, life has to stink. No, he's saying that's not the fullness I'm speaking of. If you want to live the fullness of God, he says, know the love of Christ. In context, he's not talking about the love that you have for Christ, but the love that Christ has for you. If I were to ask you, how much does Jesus love you? What would you say? 
in 2017, the month of August. What if I asked you this? Do you think God the Father loves you as much as he loves Jesus? You say, no, no way. I mean, he loves me enough to die for the cross for my sins, but not that much. Ephesians 3.19, to understand the height and the depth and the length and the breadth, to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I believe somebody here today has this idea of somebody you need to be. There's this picture in your mind that you think, if I am this person and I quit doing this and I start doing this, when I get to be that person, God is going to love me so much more. You would never say that, but you think that. The message of the gospel is he already does. If you put your faith in Jesus, he doesn't see you and your works and your righteousness, and especially not our unrighteousness, but he says he's cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. And when God the Father sees you, a believer in Jesus Christ, he sees you just as righteous as Jesus Christ. He loves you. Stop trying to earn your love from popularity and what other people think of you. Stop trying to earn your acceptance and what people think of you at work or what your bottom line looks like. My prayer is today that you will leave this service and get in your car and just think to yourself, I am loved. Even men, we need this from time to time. I would contend we need this all the time. God loves his kids. When we live like that, we can be a church. Charleston can't live without. We can glorify God by the way we live. What's the main encouragement today? It's simply this. Let's show our city that Jesus lives and Jesus loves. Let's show our city that Jesus lives and Jesus loves. Will you bow with me for prayer? Father, I pray for the man or woman in our service today that this morning understands perhaps for the first time that you're calling them to faith, to believe the gospel. I pray right now they would put their faith in Jesus knowing only he can satisfy with heads bowed and eyes closed, if that's you, the Lord has spoken to your heart and you say, I I see you now. I need to put my faith in Christ. He's inviting me into this place of satisfaction, place of forgiveness, place of wholeness. Let me invite you to pray this prayer with me in your heart. Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't save myself but I believe you love me and died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose again the third day and want to give me new life. Make me a Christian. Change me from the inside out and help me to find my acceptance in you and not what anybody else thinks. 
with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you prayed that prayer this morning, will you let me know? I'll be out in the gathering space. You can let any of our pastors know. We have a couple folks back in the living room. Our pastors would love just to say, hey, we'd love to help you in your Christian life. Or just shoot us a message this week so we can follow up and help you on this journey. Christian, in a moment, as we just sing the end of this new song that we've learned, let's sing it with all of our hearts and ask God to help us to be a church that's all about Him. Help us to look up at His glory and to make Him known to our city. Father, would you make it so? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.